Well, we are back for our second study of, of uh, the book of Philemon tonight. I'm so excited to be back to pick up where we left off from last week. And as you'll recall from our previous lesson, we were able to survey some of the key background information that will help us better understand what Paul is conveying throughout this letter. By way of review, let's go over the highlights of what we were able to discover from our study last week on verses 1 to 3 of Philemon. And, of course, in conjunction with the rest of the supporting evidence we considered throughout the New Testament. You'll recall that during our previous lesson, we observed that the Apostle Paul is the author of Philemon, and he wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment, which took place at some point between the years 60 and 62 AD. We summarized the theme of the book of Philemon as God's forgiveness produces Christian forgiveness, and we also stated that the purpose for the book of Philemon is to encounter God's manual for how Christians are to model forgiveness towards others. God's manual for Christian forgiveness. That is the broad, overarching theme or idea of the book of Philemon. We also noted that the original recipients of this letter were Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and the church that met in Philemon's house. Verses 1 to 3 revealed to us that Paul had a close relationship with these believers, and when compared to the rest of the New Testament epistles, the book of Philemon is by far the most intimately written. All that background information set the course for where we're going to be headed tonight over the rest of this lesson. As I mentioned last week, we're going to spend our time together tonight, as you'll see noted in your handouts. We're going to spend some time together tonight looking at Paul's appeal for forgiveness as depicted in verses 4 to 16. The appeal for forgiveness as depicted in verses 4 to 16. In keeping with the pattern we established during our previous study, let's first consider the totality of the book of Philemon before narrowing our attention to the set of verses that will be at the forefront of our minds tonight. I'll be reading this letter from the New American Standard Bible. You follow along with me in your copy of the Word of God as I read this passage, starting in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, 
a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time also, prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And this is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this evening. According to a 2018 study conducted by LifeWay Research, one of the hardest tasks for self-identifying Christians to take upon themselves is the act of extending forgiveness to other people. Based on this particular study, six out of ten self-identifying Christians said that they can identify at least one person in their life who they are struggling to offer forgiveness to. And approximately one out of four self-identifying Christians say that there is at least one person in their life who they cannot forgive under any circumstances. As disheartening as these results may sound from the study, they shouldn't come as a surprise to those who have a biblically informed view of the nature of sin. As we learn from passages such as Romans 3 verses 9 to 18, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, among others that we could reference here, sin has corrupted every faculty of the human nature. Sin has completely infiltrated the mind, body, soul, and will of every person who has ever descended from Adam and Eve. As we learn from the Lord Jesus Christ in John 8, 34, the natural man is utterly enslaved to sin. And the byproduct of the natural man's enslavement to sin, according to Romans 8, 7 to 8, is that the natural man will never freely submit himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Instead, he will only pursue the things of this world that satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 1 John 2, 16. These realities simply demonstrate the impossibility for the natural man to ever do anything that is pleasing to God, which includes granting genuine forgiveness towards other people from the heart. Therefore, when speaking about unbelievers, the Bible is clear that we should expect them to remain adamant against forgiving other people or to engage in any type of true, genuine forgiveness. Any forgiveness offered by an unbeliever is simply a superficial expression of forgiveness. It's a means to an end to satisfy a burden in their lives, particularly their relationships. Galatians 5, 19-21 provides the summary statement for how the lifestyle pattern of the unconverted can be identified, among which, if you look closely, we see references of lifestyle patterns of willfully unresolved conflict, which is a synonym for unresolved relationship conflict. Unresolved or unforgiven relationships. Notice what Paul writes in that section of Scripture. Galatians 5, 19-21, you have your Bible and you're taking notes some way or another. This is a good passage to 
highlight or star underline, if you're doing any evangelism, this is a divinely inspired summary of key lifestyle characteristics that will be evident in the unbeliever. Listen to what Paul writes, starting in verse 19. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, and here we go, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, all those are often characteristic of relationships where forgiveness is not prevalent, carousing, drunkenness, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, Paul writes, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is to say, those who walk in these patterns of life in an an unrepentant, willful fashion will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul's saying in this text. So the Bible is clear that offering genuine forgiveness from the heart is utterly impossible for the unconverted. As such, when reflecting on the statistics I shared just a few moments ago from the LifeWay study, we can say that any self-identifying Christian who refuses to offer forgiveness to other people may be demonstrating the reality that they themselves are not truly saved. My friends, it is an immensely dangerous place to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but to simultaneously be resolved to intentionally withhold forgiveness from other people. But what are we to make of the 6 out of 10 self-identifying Christians who claim to struggle with offering forgiveness? After all, if we're honest with ourselves, we would all admit that it is not always easy to forgive those who have committed severe transgressions against us. It's not always easy to offer forgiveness to other people. What should we make of that reality? Moreover, what are we to make of this Letters teaching about forgiveness in light of the slave-master relationship that we see here referenced by Paul in regard to Philemon and Onesimus. Did you catch that as we were reading through the letter tonight? Shouldn't we say that Philemon ought to be the one apologizing to Onesimus for his slavery? After all, Onesimus was a slave. Shouldn't Paul be instructing Philemon to offer forgiveness? Or excuse me, shouldn't he be saying that Philemon ought to be apologizing for enslaving Onesimus? What are we to make of this issue when we read this letter? Well, these are some very important questions that we're going to be considering tonight, among other topics, during our time in verses 4 to 16 of the book of Philemon. Having said all that by way of introduction, let's start working our way through tonight's text, verse by verse, starting with Paul's opening words of thanksgiving and prayer. Notice again what he writes in verses 4 to 6. Verse 4, Paul writes, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. In keeping with how the Apostle Paul begins so many of his other letters He dives into the body of this epistle with an expression of praise and an expression of prayer. Paul's expression of praise is found in verses 4 and 5, and his expression of prayer is contained in verse 6. Based on what Paul writes here, he he says that he exhibits a consistent pattern of praising God 
for the evidence of his work in those who are being addressed in this letter. Did you notice that the expression of praise? Paul says that he praises the Lord for the lives of Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and the entire congregation that met in Philemon's house. And why does he do that? Well, he gives two explicit reasons in verse 5. The first reason for Paul's expression of praise is that these readers have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the second reason for Paul's offering of thanks to God is due to the love that these believers have for one another. In other words, Paul is thankful that his readers are those who put into practice what they profess to believe. They don't only talk the talk, they don't only self-identify as followers of Jesus Christ, but they also walk the walk. That is to say, they exhibit the most fundamental evidence that accompanies all who have come to saving faith. And what's that evidence? Well, as the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, the most fundamental evidence that accompanies true Christians is a love for God and a love for fellow believers. Notice what John writes in that passage. Another great passage to memorize or to be familiar with. In fact, the whole fourth chapter of 1 John is really a climactic overview of love how that's an evidence of true saving faith. Notice what John writes in verse 7 of that chapter. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us, one another, let us love one another. Why? Well, because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So verses 4 and 5 portray Paul's expression of praise rendered to God on behalf of his first century readers. But then notice how Paul shifts from this expression of praise to an expression of prayer in verse 6. Notice how this shift takes place from verses 4 to 5 to verse 6. If I could just summarize the substance of Paul's prayer in verse 6, I think he's getting at something along these lines. Paul's saying, for the glory of God, verse 6, for the glory of God, I'm praying that the mutual participation that arises from your faith in Christ might become effective in leading you to understand and put into practice the instruction that God calls you to model as His people. He's saying, I, I pray that your koinonia, your fellowship, your participation as the people of God that comes as a result of your common salvation, I pray that's going to help you understand the Word of God deeper and to ultimately apply the Word of God on a more consistent basis where the Lord has placed you in this life. When reading this prayer in context... I believe that it's clear that Paul is using this prayer in at least two intentional ways. As Paul was a brilliant thinker, he's always thinking one step ahead. He's, he's guiding his readers somewhere. I think he's guiding them in at least two directions. First and foremost, I believe Paul wants to use this prayer as a means of encouraging his readers to press on in the work that they've already been carrying out as followers of Jesus Christ. He, he's ultimately recording this prayer as a means of edification for the original readers. He wants them to keep going. Keep fighting the good fight. Y'all are doing great. You are a solid community of faith. Continue to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. But there's a second motive for Paul including this prayer in the letter. At least, at least uh, I believe these are two of many that we could probably derive from this portion of the letter. But second key motive I believe Paul is included here is that he wants to set the stage for the appeal that he's about to make to Philemon in the forthcoming verses. He's preparing Philemon and the broader church body by extension for what he's about to instruct 
in the verses to come. You see, Paul is using this prayer as a means of notifying his readers about his hope that they will be found faithful to apply the instruction they are going to receive in this letter. He's saying, I pray that you will not only hold one another accountable to properly understanding what I'm writing to you, but you guys, I want you to hold one another accountable to apply my instruction. I want you to walk in this instruction that I have for you. And it's only after Paul makes this prayer request known to the entire congregation that he begins to direct the rest of the dialogue to Philemon. This is a broad address up to this point, verses 1 to 6. Broad address to the whole church. And then, as soon as you get through verse 6 and into verse 7, we see the word for at the beginning of verse 7. We see the term brother at the end of verse 7. We see Paul saying, okay, church, there needs to be accountability here. This is for you guys as a whole. Make sure this man I'm addressing, the rest of this letter applies this in the instruction I'm going to give in the life of this local church body. So verses 1 to 6 is focusing on the totality of the church body. And then from verse 7 to verse 16, we see Paul transition into his appeal for forgiveness directed specifically to Philemon. Verses 7 to 9 provide us with the cornerstone or the basis for Paul's appeal for forgiveness. And then verses 10 to 16 provide us with the contents of Paul's appeal for forgiveness. Verses 7 to 9, cornerstone of the appeal. Verses 10 to 16 is the contents of the appeal. With these subdivisions in mind, let's reread verses 7 to 9 and prepare to unpack Paul's reasoning behind the appeal for forgiveness that we'll ultimately get to. In verses 10 to 16. Notice what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7. He says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. As the Apostle Paul shifts to making his appeal to Philemon, he uses these verbs, these verses to establish the grounds or the cornerstone for why he is making this appeal in the first place. And at the outset of his appeal to Philemon, Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that he has confidence that Philemon is going to take this appeal to heart. There's at least two reasons embedded in verses 7 and 9 that provide us with clues as to why Paul has confidence in how Philemon will respond to his appeal and then solidify the cornerstone of the appeal that we're going to see made in verses 10 to 16. First, verse 7, Paul states that he knows firsthand about Philemon's love for the people of God and he's seen tangible evidence of Philemon edifying fellow Christians in his relationships with them. Stated differently, Paul has confidence that Philemon will be receptive to the appeal he is about to make because he has confidence in the authenticity of Philemon's profession of faith. As we discussed just a few moments ago, one of the surest marks of conversion is the manifestation of a genuine love for God's people. And from Paul's first-hand experience with Philemon, there's no question that this attribute was present in Philemon's life. He knew that Philemon was a man who loved God and loved God's people. Paul was confident 
that Philemon was going to be obedient to the instruction contained in this letter. But that now brings us to the second reason for Paul's confidence in Philemon. And we see that in verse 9. As seen in verse 9, Paul's usage of informal descriptive terms about himself provide us with yet another reminder of the intimate relationship that he had with Philemon. Paul's intimate relationship with Philemon ultimately undergirds his confidence that Philemon will apply the instruction contained in this letter. Notice in verse 9, Paul refers to himself as Paul the aged, which literally means old man. He refers to himself, hey, I'm Paul, I'm an old man, and I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And that's really just consistent with what we noticed back in verses 1 to 3. Recall from our previous study that Paul's desire throughout this letter is to remind Philemon of the closeness of their friendship. It's as if Paul is saying to Philemon, just as I know your character well enough to have confidence in your response to my forthcoming appeal, you also know me well enough to have confidence that what I'm going to ask of you in this letter comes from a genuine love for you. And this appeal I'm about to make to you, Philemon, is ultimately for your spiritual good. There's a personal flavor present in this forthcoming appeal. And I believe this interpretation fits nicely with what we can also see in verse 8. In verse 8, Paul alludes to his apostolic authority, and he makes a passing reference to the reality that Christ has given him the highest level of authority over first century Christians. As such... Philemon has the responsibility to submit to whatever instruction Paul gives to him because to receive instruction from an apostle is tantamount to receiving instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, verse 8 saying, Paul saying, Philemon, you know, I, I could order you to apply what I'm going to command you here in this letter. I, I, I could come down on you hard, but brother, you know me. I know you. I'm going to appeal to you here. I'm going to make a tender-hearted appeal for you to take my instruction to heart as a dear friend and brother in Christ. Paul has no interest in lording his apostolic authority over his dear friend. He simply desires Philemon to see his forthcoming appeal not as a burden to be imposed by a harsh leader, but as a heartfelt request made by a dear friend. Now, before we move on any further in our passage, I want to make sure we're all on the same page about what Paul is not trying to say or model at this point in his letter. Because this could cause confusion if we're not clear on what Paul's not trying to say at this point. Paul's not saying that his, apostol that his apostolic authority is to be disregarded, nor is he saying that it is always appropriate for spiritual leaders to withhold exercising their authority in the local church. In other words, Paul is saying that Christians everywhere should just disregard apostolic authority, nor is he saying that spiritual leaders should never enforce their God-ordained authority in their congregation. How do we know that? Well, we know from Matthew 18, 15, 17, that our Lord Jesus Christ provided us with a systematic approach for dealing with unrepentant sin in the lifestyle of professing believers. In other words, if, if Paul's saying disregard apostolic authority and spiritual leaders, disregard your, um, your authority in the local church simply for the sake of always being gracious and compassionate and so on, then Christ's command about church discipline doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13, 
The Apostle Paul exercises his apostolic authority by commanding the Corinthians to excommunicate two church members, a man and a woman, who were unrepentant in their engaging of the sinful practice of incest. So Paul elsewhere writes, hey, spiritual leaders, church body, hold believers accountable to sin issues in the life of your congregation. So in some cases, putting it all together here, in some cases it's not only biblically recommended, but it's ultimately biblically mandated for spiritual leaders in the local church to exercise their God-ordained authority by way of commanding members to act or behave in a certain way. And this is specifically the case when we deal with willful, unrepentant sin in a congregation. Moreover, just touching on the theme of apostolic authority, all Christians everywhere at all times are accountable to obeying the instruction of the apostles contained in the New Testament as appointed by the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Since none of us have a personal relationship with an apostle, nor has an apostle ever written us a letter or had a conversation with us to try to make it appeal to us, since none of that is true of any of us here in 2022, we are always accountable to applying whatever instruction we find in the New Testament because those New Testament writings carry the same authority as Christ and his apostles. We don't have a choice to say, well, I know this passage in the New Testament says X, but that New Testament writer wouldn't have wanted to lord that over me. I, I think I'm going to kind of just sit back and, and really not take it to heart. We don't have that luxury. Because we find in passages like 2 Thessalonians 2.15 that Paul writes these words of instruction. He, he says, Brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Be obedient, he says, to what we have taught you, whether orally or in writing. So while it is especially precious to see the personal flavor associated with this letter, Paul's letter to Philemon, we must be very careful to ensure that we guard against undermining apostolic authority and spiritual leaders in the local church need to be willing to exercise their God-ordained authority as opportunities necessitate them doing so in the local church context. Having said all that by way of clarification, we now come to examine the contents of Paul's appeal to Philemon, the contents of Paul's appeal for forgiveness, as encapsulated in verses 10 to 16. Notice those verses again with me in your Bibles. Verses 10 to 16, the appeal for forgiveness. Paul writes, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps Onesimus was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In verses 10 and 11 of this letter, we see Paul begin to make his appeal for Philemon to extend forgiveness to Onesimus. 
This is the first time that Onesimus is mentioned in the letter, and it's really not until verse 18 that we get any clue of what Onesimus has done wrong to Philemon. Lord willing, we'll get into some of the theories about what Onesimus may have did to wrong Philemon during our time together next week. There's some interesting theories that you'll read from commentators in that regard. But here tonight, as we look to our text, specifically in verses 10 and 11, there are at least two observations that I want us to derive. Two observations that I want us to make from verses 10 and 11. Notice these observations with me as we go through these two verses. The first observation is that Onesimus was saved and discipled through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Observation number one, as testified to in verses 10 and 11, Onesimus was saved and discipled through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We don't know the specific details about how Onesimus would have come into contact with Paul, especially since Paul would have been in prison during the time that Onesimus fled to Rome. But in the incredible providence of God, as testified to in this letter and Colossians, Onesimus was not only exposed to Paul during his time in Rome, but he also came to saving faith at some point during his exposure to the apostle. It's for this reason that Paul refers to Onesimus as my child and as the one whom he had begotten in his imprisonment. These designations are explicit testimonies from Paul that Onesimus came to faith under his ministry efforts and that he had opportunity to disciple Onesimus as a new convert. We find this reality further corroborated by Paul describing Onesimus as our faithful and beloved brother in Colossians 4.9. And that brings us to the second observation I want us to make from verses 10 and 11. Coming off the heels of verse 10, Paul tells Philemon that Onesimus is now able to live up to his name. This is interesting. What does that mean? Able to live up to his name. Well, the name Onesimus literally means useful. Useful. Many commentators acknowledge as they look at this text that the Apostle Paul is employing a play on words in verse 11 to emphasize a radical spiritual reality. A radical transformation has occurred in Onesimus' life since he abandoned Philemon as an unbelieving slave. Paul's doing a wordplay to capture some of that transformation. You see, by virtue of coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, Onesimus has become a new creation. He is a changed man with a transformed character. And the Apostle Paul has borne witness to Onesimus' character transformation. And he's seen how faithfully Onesimus has served him since his conversion. Therefore, Paul can emphatically declare to Philemon that upon Onesimus' return, Philemon will be receiving a profoundly useful man. He's a man that can now live up to his own name. Now in verses 12 to 14, we begin to encounter Paul's explanation for why he has chosen to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Notice those verses again with me in your Bibles, zeroing in on 12 through 14. Paul says, I have sent Onesimus back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. In these verses, Paul says that although he wished he could keep Onesimus with him in Rome for the purpose of assisting him with his ministry from prison, 
He did not want to do so without first having Philemon's blessing. As much as Paul loved Onesimus, even to the point of regarding Onesimus as his very heart, as the one he was most affectionate for, Paul could not keep Onesimus in Rome without first obtaining Philemon's consent. Paul knew that because Philemon was Onesimus' master and would have had absolute legal authority over, over Onesimus, it would have been against Roman law for Paul to harbor a runaway slave. So there was a legal motivation for sending Onesimus back to Philemon. That's certainly the case. But even further than that, Paul knew that it was far more important for Philemon and Onesimus to be reconciled as brothers in Christ and to have a legally restored master-slave relationship than it was for Onesimus to remain with him in Rome. Paul has a legal motivation. He says, Onesimus, you got... I can't harbor a fugitive slave. You've got to go and make things right with your master, legally speaking. But even more than that, you're now a brother to Philemon. Go back. Be reconciled to your master whom you've wronged. I will vouch for you. I will make an appeal for him to forgive you. And that's precisely what Paul argues in verses 15 and 16. Notice those verses with me in your copy of God's Word. Verse 15. For perhaps, Paul writes, for perhaps Onesimus was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? I just love how Paul starts this, uh, this couplet of verses, these two verses. For perhaps... In typical Pauline fashion, for perhaps, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul tie the intricacies of Onesimus' and Philemon's relationship back to the sovereignty of God. Typical Pauline fashion. He's saying, let me just give you the big picture here, Philemon. What if, for perhaps, God has orchestrated Onesimus' escape? Perhaps... God has orchestrated Onesimus' encounter with me. Perhaps God has orchestrated Onesimus' conversion and discipleship under me. Perhaps God has orchestrated Onesimus' ministry efforts in Rome on my behalf. And now, Philemon, perhaps God has orchestrated Onesimus' return to you. All for the purpose of providing you men with the opportunity to model and experience genuine, biblical, Christ-like reconciliation with one another. What if in the inestimable and infinitely wise sovereignty of God, God has orchestrated all of this so that you guys can model true reconciliation, so that you guys can both be sanctified, and so that the church for over 2,000 years later can read of this account and be drastically impacted and benefited from seeing what true reconciliation looks like in the life of believers. For perhaps God has done this, says Paul. My friends, God is so intentional about the sanctification of His people that He's willing to sovereignly orchestrate something as crazy as these events to accomplish the spiritual good of those who belong to Him. In the final analysis, there are few things more sanctifying than having to extend forgiveness to one who has committed a serious transgression against you. 
My friends, that's one of the many blessings that stem directly from salvation and is able to be manifested in one's process of being further conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Whereas unbelievers are incapable of extending genuine forgiveness from the heart, the believer is now equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be reconciled to the offended party. You see, the assumption undergirding Paul's appeal in this section of this letter is that forgiveness and reconciliation will take place between Paul and Onesimus simply because they are fellow co-heirs in Jesus Christ. Paul has no doubt that true reconciliation is not only possible, but that it's a guarantee because he knows these men. He's seen their profession of faith lived out. They possess the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit will unite these brothers in true, genuine, heartfelt forgiveness and reconciliation. The biblical expectation, how does this apply to us? Well, the biblical expectation is that when any person asks for forgiveness and demonstrates that they have taken ownership in their role for straining a relationship, then biblically, the offended party must always grant them forgiveness. Where there is confession and repentance and an appeal for forgiveness to be made, the Bible says, Christian, you are obligated to forgive. And you are obligated to forgive every time that takes place. As our Lord teaches in Matthew 18, 21-35, there is to be no limitation to the number of times we extend forgiveness to any person who seeks to be reconciled with us. Up to 70 times 7. There's no end, says Christ. And even though it may be difficult to express forgiveness to those who have wronged us, Christians are to be the most forgiving people in the world. Because in a very real sense, you're never more like God than when you grant forgiveness and reconciliation to those who have caused a strain in your relationship. Because we have been the recipients of the unsearchable and endless grace and mercy and love of God. We should be willing and eager to dispense that to other people who come to us for forgiveness and reconciliation. And just to ensure that Paul dotted all of his I's and crossed all of his T's on this subject, he got the entirety of Philemon's local church involved to hold these men accountable to modeling the instruction he gives in this letter. Although we aren't given the details about how Philemon and Onesimus' encounter went, we don't have a description of how the reconciliation ultimately transpired. But you better believe that the Apostle Paul did everything in his power to ensure that that relationship was going to be made right. And therein lies the importance of local church accountability. So we've now surveyed the Apostle Paul's appeal for forgiveness from Philemon verses 4 to 16. But before we move on to our season of group discussion, I want us to take some time to deal with one of the most debated interpretive issues associated with the book of Philemon and really the totality of the New Testament. Notice that Paul's appeal to Philemon is not to grant Onesimus freedom from slavery. In verse 16, Paul instructs Philemon to change the manner in which he views Onesimus. He does not explicitly lobby for Onesimus' emancipation from slavery. This observation is consistent with how the New Testament speaks on the topic of slavery. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20-22, to 
We see Paul saying that if a person has the ability to become free from slavery, then they can certainly and, and, and are ultimately free to pursue such freedom. They have that freedom. They have that uh, ability if the opportunity presents itself, says Paul. But he does not prohibit Christians from serving in the capacity of slavery. Notice 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 to 22. He writes, Each person is to remain in the state in which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Do not let it concern you. But if you are also able to become free, take advantage of that. For the one who was called in the Lord as a slave is the Lord's free person. Likewise, the one who was called as free is Christ's slave. Furthermore, in texts like Ephesians 6, 5-9, Colossians 3, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And those texts in the New Testament, all of which were written by Paul, we find instruction that should undergird the master-slave relationship that existed during the era of the Roman Empire. We don't have time to go to all those texts tonight, but I've given you many to flip through. You'll see a robust, biblically mandated instruction for how masters and slaves should interact as believers. So that brings us to the bottom line of the bottom line. What do we make of these observations? Does this mean the Bible is pro-slavery? Does this mean the Civil War slavery movement and others that are like it throughout human history? Does that mean that those were okay? Well, in the final analysis, we must start here. Scripture does not specifically condemn the practice of slavery. There's no condemnation for the practice of slavery. Rather, the Bible gives ample instruction on how slaves should be treated, but it does not outlaw the institution of slavery altogether. But I want to make this very clear. This does not mean that the Bible approves of all forms of slavery indiscriminately. In fact, any expression of slavery throughout human history that involved man-stealing or was driven by racist or partiality is explicitly condemned throughout the Word of God. Man-stealing, racism, and partiality of any kind is all explicitly condemned in God's Word. I'll give you an Old Testament, New Testament example. In Exodus 21, verse 16, we find that the penalty for being guilty of man-stealing in the nation of Israel was death. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul condemns the practice of man-stealing along with a multitude of other behaviors in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10. to 10. So based on the testimony of God's Word, there were very narrowly defined parameters of what is an appropriate expression of master-slave relationships and what is not. Plus, when viewed in light of the historical evidence, slavery during the Roman Empire was primarily driven by economics. People would enter into slavery freely when they could not pay off their debts or when they could not provide for their families adequately through other means. In fact, it would not be uncommon to find doctors, lawyers, and even politicians as slaves to someone else. It was a means of gaining income in the Roman Empire. And in the case of those who served under a Christian master, these slaves would often choose to remain in service to their Christian master because all their needs would be provided and they would be provided by a gracious master. Oftentimes, masters would evangelize those who would work for them in the office or capacity of being a slave. 
And as we see in Scripture, there's a biblical expectation that just like an employer and employee should interact within the workplace environment, there's also an expectation for how masters and slaves should interact in their respective institution, doing so in a manner that's pleasing and honoring to God. Now, it certainly doesn't mean that there was never any abuses within the system. After all, we recognize that by virtue of living in a fallen world, there's always going to be abuses of power. There's always going to be a twisting of things to make a good office or a, a good content sinful and negatively impacted. I'm not going to lie and say that slavery during the era of the Roman Empire was an exception to the rule. There was horrific manifestations of abuse of power from masters to slaves. You look up anywhere, Google it, books. Just like there was abuses during the Civil War era, there was abuses during slavery in the Roman Empire. There's abuses of slavery going back into Old Testament Israel. But nevertheless, I want to be clear and be thinking biblically about this issue. There is no doubt that the Apostle Paul expected Philemon, a master, to be faithful to adhering to the biblical mandates regarding how he should treat Onesimus as his slave. And he likewise expected, Paul, he likewise expected Philemon to not only be found faithful in how he forgave Onesimus and how he was reconciled to Onesimus, but Paul also expected Philemon to be found faithful to how he treated Onesimus as a slave. His congregation was to hold him accountable to making sure that he was functioning in that relationship biblically. And I said it earlier, I'll say it again, this is yet another reminder of why the local church is so vital to Christian life. Therefore, may we also be found faithful in our commitment and involvement within the congregation that God has placed us in this life, for it is always to be oriented for his supreme glory and our eternal good. May we be found faithful in that regard. Well, at this time, we now come to our season of group discussion. We're going to transition now into the discussion questions found at the bottom of page two in your handouts. And looking forward to hearing your feedback. I know some people had to go home due to how late this message was started. But hopefully amongst ourselves, we can facilitate a decent conversation. First question. In light of sin corrupting the totality of the human nature, mind, body, soul, and will, why is it impossible, by way of review, why is it impossible for an unregenerate person to offer genuine, God-honoring forgiveness from the heart? In light of sin, how it's totally corrupted the human nature, why can't the unbeliever give the kind of forgiveness that God commands us to offer to those who have Offended us to those who have committed transgressions against us. So, you gotta love God and love others. That's right. You must love God in order to manifest the kind of love that He calls us to model towards others. And what in that same chapter later on, First John four seven and eight, we read it earlier, but First John four nineteen, the theme verse for our church. Why do we love God ultimately? Yeah, because he loved us first. He saved us, right? So if I have not received God's love and forgiveness first, then I can't offer that to anybody else, right? That's where the logic comes into play. Forgiveness that genuinely flows from the heart 
and desires a, a true, genuine desire to be reconciled with another person. That kind of forgiveness is only possible by a true believer because only one who's been born again will even have the desire to model that towards others. You can't strive to obey God or to honor God if you don't know God. Those are mutually interconnected realities. Any other thoughts on that before we go? Sorry. I like the other first John passage where it says... Um, he who does not love his brother does not love the father. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, you don't, if you don't love your brother who you have saw, why would you love God which you have never seen? Right? I mean, that, that, that's a brilliant line of argument. How could you ever expect to, 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 to love God if you don't even love your brother? Right? Very good. Very good thoughts. So you kind of stole the answer here. Very good. Pretty pretty straightforward uh, question, but um, very well done in answering that. Question two, and this is my favorite question out of the four that I came up with for this lesson. How did Paul's understanding of the sovereignty of God impact his understanding of Onesimus' and Philemon's situation? And how should those convictions impact our understanding of God's sovereignty? Verses 15 and 16, that's the clue. Those are the verses that really get to the heart of the issue. Think about God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty over the whole situation with Onesimus and Pilate. What, what, uh, what is Paul, what's Paul arguing there by way of review, and how should that impact us? Onesimus and Philemon, God ordained 
Onesimus to run away. He just so happened in running away, probably stole something or, or, or more than something. We'll talk about the theories next week. Uh, don't exactly know where I land just yet. But Fi- uh, Onesimus runs from Philemon. And he just so happens to stumble in to, to Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire, the biggest city in the Roman Empire. And I don't know how this happened, but he just so happens to stumble upon Paul, who's in prison. And not only did he just so happen to stumble upon Paul, who is the greatest evangelist in the history of the church, he gets saved and he starts being discipled by Paul. And it just so happens that Paul had a close personal relationship with Philemon, who was Onesimus' master, who he ran from. And Paul's saying, fellas, Philemon, Onesimus, God decreed and arranged all of this so you could come back to one another and be reconciled for the glory of God and your own good through sanctification. He orchestrated all this so Onesimus could meet me and be saved. Philemon, he's orchestrated all this so I can write this letter to you. And then the church through all the ages is going to learn from your example and from the instruction I've given you. That's the sovereignty of God. That is the infinite wisdom of God. Model, as, Ken, as Hannah said, it's, it's complex. A lot of different factors. I probably just barely touched the surface of, of how all that worked out, but that's what we're doing here. So I think Paul's understanding of the sovereignty of God it impacted his understanding of Onesimus and Philemon's situation because it, it was just another reminder: like God is the one who's in control of everything. God is the one who's ordained everything. God is the one who has a purpose for everything. It should cause the believer to worship, and it should cause us to grow in humility. That's exactly we should be humble. That that's like when you when you take a step back and like look at the bigger picture, you realize like this goes so far beyond what I can see and what I can understand. So and I much. think like it's even cooler like that. We get to hear Paul's perspective on this, like. I bet it, it, I know it sounds so different if we heard, like, Onesimus or Philemon, but, like, Paul wasn't picking sides. Mm-hmm. He was like, let's just honor the Lord in it. Yeah. But he didn't, like, I think, especially now, like, it's so easy to sit idly in that and be like, well, let's leave it up to God. But he gave them instructions. And, yeah. like, I don't know, I think it's so cool how, how, like, personal this is, but how we can so easily apply mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and it wouldn't have been easy. I mean, it certainly would not have been easy. There's a reason why Paul's the one doing this writing. And even Paul, as close as he was to Philemon, Paul knew, I better get the church involved in this because Philemon, just like Paul, just like us, we're sinners. And sometimes we're stubborn and sometimes we have hard hearts. Like those six out of ten that Lifeway Research surveyed, if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're probably in that 6 out of 10 sometimes. Forgiveness is hard work, but it's what we're called to do biblically. And the church to come alongside us in those moments where we've got to model biblical principles of forgiveness and reconciliation, that is so important. So important. But we do have instruction, as you said, Hannah, so well. We do have instruction to follow. Um, and it's God's grace that he's not left us in the dark, but he's given us such a clear example to follow. Very good. Number three, though. Moving on here. Number three. Lengthy. I'm wordy, as you guys know. Uh, so 
Stay with me. Paul's appeal for forgiveness was presented to Philemon within the context of a letter that was to be read in the local church. First question. What does this say about the church's responsibility to hold self-identifying Christians accountable to grant forgiveness and reconciliation when deemed necessary? So let's start there. What should the church do to ensure that we're modeling forgiveness and reconciliation when opportunities are presented? How does this letter give us insight there? I know we talked a lot about that even within the last few moments, talking about the previous question, but any practical insights, any thoughts y'all have? Thought. Doing life together, right? How can you know what's going on in the lives of people if you're not part of their lives? If you just come to church on Sunday and you leave as soon as the service is over, you're never going to know if there's real problems that need to be resolved. If you don't have relationships with other believers, you don't know how you can pray for them. You don't know how you can comfort them from Scripture or exhort them from Scripture. You're absolutely right, Sai. You've got to do life with other believers to even be in a position to hold believers accountable to forgiveness, reconciliation, and all the other principles we find that believers are held accountable to. Any other thoughts on that? First question. And we can go to the second one then, part two of that question. How should the church respond if a self-identifying Christian refuses to grant forgiveness to one who has expressed repentance and earnestly sought reconciliation. What do we do? Right? You got a person or a group of people in the local church who just want nothing to do with somebody. Who maybe, you know, let's just, for the sake of example, this person, he or she made mistakes, right? Made mistakes. But that person, they've confessed. That they made, that they've agreed with God's word and with the witnesses that there were mistakes made by them. They feel contrition for it. That is, they, they're convicted by it. It's not just superficial agreement, but it's true agreement, deep rooted agreement. I messed up, and then there's true repentance. I, I, I messed up, and I, I want to change. I am going to change. I'm moving forward. Will you forgive me? brother, sister, what have you, and you have a group or just one, whether it's one person or group, they say, nope, I'm not going to forgive you. What should the church do in response to that scenario? What do y'all think? It's almost like the passage of Matthew on church discipline. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You should, you, I mean, think about this. You should discipline, even though if the person that they're mad at really messed up, the church still has responsibility to, if, if the unforgiveness persists, you start exercising the church disciplinary process with those people. Because Jesus, literally in the verses right after that passage, he says, you must forgive those who repent and come seeking forgiveness. You must do it. And you must not only do it seven times, as Peter asked. You've got to do it as many times as this happens. And the principle there, I think, is that Christ knows. He was a perfect God-man. 
Christ knew. There's going to be a lot of times you have to forgive people because you're, you're sinners. And you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. You've got to forgive one another. You've got to be just as quick to forgive somebody else as you would want them to be quick to forgive you so long as there's true repentance, confession, and a desire to change. Now, if it's a superficial apology, yeah, 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 I'm sorry, but, but you keep doing it. They don't, they don't, they're not going to care. They don't, that person really isn't sorry. They're not really seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. That's where the church sets in and says, okay, you know, you're saying one thing with your lips, but your lifestyle is completely contrary. Now we're going to start disappointing you because you really aren't sorry for your sin or sorry for causing there to be strain in your, relation, in your relationship with those people. You're the issue. You need to repent. And then you go Matthew 18 procedures in, in that case for that individual. So... Guys, church discipline is not, here's the thing, church discipline in Scripture, it's not for power-hungry spiritual leaders who want to punish people. It's in Scripture to protect the purity of the church's doctrine and lifestyle practice. And ultimately, it's in the Bible and it's provided for us by Christ for the purpose of reconciliation to take place. That's the goal. That's the end purpose of church discipline. It's not to push the people out of the church. It's to cause reconciliation within the church. Or maybe it's to evangelize. Like, maybe the person who's at fault isn't even a believer. They think they are. They've identified as one. But through the process of being this one, God opens their eyes. And they get saved. And then they're truly reconciled. Bell and I, at our former church, we saw it happen. We saw it where people would be put on church discipline and they would, they would repent and be restored. Some people repented and their repentance was unto salvation. They weren't even saved and they realized it while they were being disciplined. And of course you got those who aren't Christians. They were never Christians. They played the game. They got caught doing whatever sin they were doing. They got put on church discipline and we never heard from them again. You have different outcomes. But the purpose, it's always we want to reconcile true believers that are being disciplined. That's why we got it in, in here. It's Christ's purpose for having it in the Word. And then, of course, it's to make sure that our worship and our lifestyle is pure. Because let me tell you this much. If you're sitting in a church where church discipline is faithfully administered in accordance with Scripture, it puts a healthy fear in everybody who's there. A healthy fear of, I do not ever want that to happen to me. God, help me. To be above reproach. Help me to repent from my sin. Help me to pursue holiness. It has a twofold effect. It's for purity of the local church body and their doctrine and in their life, and it's for reconciliation, whether of a, of a true believer who's in a pattern of sin or an unbeliever who's just playing a game to come to know Christ and be saved through the disciplinary process. And of course, if they were never saved to begin with and they leave, that's back to the purity of doctrine and practice. It gets rid of unbelievers who are just in the church walls playing the game. Any other thoughts before we turn to question four? I know it's Paul saying it, but I can't help but think of like our Father kind of looking at us when we are creating division or in conflict with each other and refusing reconciliation and saying, like, never mind that you owe me mercy I've given you. But anything that your brother and sister in Christ has done against you, charge that to my account. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that next week. Absolutely. There's a parallel there. 
Oh, it's absolutely there. Yeah, next week, Lord willing, we're going to see... So we, we've got the appeal tonight. We've got to the appeal, and then we're going to see how Paul wants it to be applied, the application. Do this now. Appeal to you now. now this is what you got to do now. So, yeah, Samantha, very good insight there. Number four. How has tonight's lesson impacted your understanding of the Bible's depiction of slavery? Because that's a big... That's a big... Objection used by unbelievers, not just in our day, but going a long time ago. People have always thrown that, well, the Bible, the Bible justifies slavery, so how could you believe in such a barbaric document? What do you guys think? We saw tonight. Yeah, the Bible doesn't say get rid of slavery, but the Bible is very, very clear where there, insofar there is slavery, there needs to, there are strict standards in place for how that relationship should function. It's not racial, it's not partial, it's it, it's not um, a situation where the owner can go and, and steal people and hold them against their will. It's none of that stuff. It, it's it's very clear cut, methodical. And God-honoring conduct that's being instructed in God's Word, insofar that institution exists. I'm not, I'm, just, I'm not saying I'm for it to exist. I'm just saying insofar that it's present, there's a way in which the Bible helps believers navigate through it. What are your thoughts on that? Cyrus. Scripture, in other words, what you're saying, as long as, it's, as long as it's how Scripture instructs it to function, there's no issue with it. Yeah, I don't have an issue. Yeah. There's no example of submission in Scripture that isn't reciprocal in some level. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no example of submission to a master that is not a relationship. Yeah. It's, there's no, like, lording over. I think that's, that's important to look at because like naturally, especially like everything I've ever learned about slavery has always been negative because that's like in the most recent form, it was horrible. Terrible. And to this day in some places. Right, like it's horrible but but like we can't ignore the clear passages of scripture that, that give the masters instruction mm-hmm. as well. Like, it's just like husband and wife. You know, wives, you gotta submit to your husband. Everyone loves that. Well then turn around well, hey, uh, husbands, uh, you, you need to um, love her like Christ loves the church. Uh, wait a second now. Who's got the short end of that stick? You know what I mean? It's the same. I mean, it's the same. Like, hey, master, hey, slaves, you know, submit to your master, blah, blah. Masters can't sit back and say, yeah, yeah, slave. You know, no, 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 masters, you, you, better, you better serve them well as they're serving you. You better shepherd and lead them well. It's, it's like you said, reciprocal. Uh, biblically, I'll, I'll throw a little Greek here. We are described as doulos to Christu, slaves of Christ. 
That is, that is how the Bible describes us and our relationship to Christ. He is a gracious master, a loving master, a kind master. But there's still an authority submission dynamic there. And as Samantha said, it's a true personal relationship. It's not a, a, a rigid or ethereal or abstract dynamic there. It, it's intimate, it's personal, and it's governed by righteousness and purity and ultimately self-sacrificial love. And that's how the biblical depiction of master-slave relationships is supposed to function. I learned that when you lost saying the first day you were here. Yep. Yes. Yep. I still remember that. How many books of the Bible begin with an introduction in which they say, like, Absolutely. And we and you know what? We because of how dreadful stuff like American Civil War is in our English, we've softened it to bond servant, but it's it's slave. Right. And and, and again that word is so provocative because of the historical baggage it carries. But it, it, it it's truly you are you are you're in bondage to your master, but it's it's a bondage that's that's spiritually liberating. It's a bondage that's that's for your good, for your flourishing. And your master that you're in bondage to loves you. He laid his life down for you. Um, it's, it's powerful imagery that the Bible uses about our relationship with God and about how the master-slave relationship should function as well. I think it's really interesting because, like, I don't know, personally, I can't speak for everybody, but, like, personally, there's such a, like, rub with the word submit. Like, I don't know if that's just goes against everything that I want for myself, but just that word makes me uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to submit. I don't want to be told what to do. Yes. But I think that's, like, again, like, why it's so important to to think about, like, there, there's accountability on both ends of that. Like, mm-hmm. it's not just, well, you just said to be quiet. Like, yeah. you do what you're told all the time. Like, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that feels that way. It's so uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, it's it's that, that, that little three-letter word, sin, that makes us not want to submit. When in reality, Adam and Eve were told to submit to God. They didn't. Bad things happened. Sin entered the world. Death, etc., etc., etc. And, like, even our, even our sinless parents, for whatever reason, in God's providence, they failed to submit. And really, like, the Bible's trying to say, like, your flourishing, your good is accomplished when you submit to your gracious Father in heaven. That's for your flourishing. The world wants to say, you do you. Carpe diem. Uh, uh, what do they say? Um, YOLO, right? What is YOLO? You only live once. Yeah, forget submission. Go do whatever you want to do. Do what it makes you happy. Right. And, you know, can I, like as a woman, I totally felt that way. But it makes so much of a difference when you do learn what biblical submission looks like. And you go, you know, return to what his intentions are for submission, how different mm-hmm. that looks. If you are with someone and surrounded by people who understand what that submission looks like, because when you're in the world, Submission is terrible. It is oppressive. It is slavery in the modern sense. Mm-hmm. It's not slavery. It's not submission. You know, it's not servitude Amen. in a biblical sense. Amen. Is this interesting in God? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just like, 
it's it's so weird to me because while there is that like tension where I'm like oh, I don't like it, there's also that like part of me that's like that's just so beautiful. And then like we get the privilege to reflect like Christ in the church in that way. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that God's providence every like even apart from us having to submit to Him as Creator. Every you are submitting to somebody at every point in your life. You, you need to submit. Kids are submitting to their parents. If you're an adult, you're submitting to law enforcement. Um, and of course, if you're in, like if you're not a pastor, you're submitting to your spiritual leadership in a local church. God has ordained all these different channels of submission within creation to I think point us to the fact, as I mentioned earlier, like submission done well, all under the umbrella or under the heading of God, our submission to Him as Heavenly Father, and then our submission to His God-ordained channels of authority and creation, that is to promote human flourishing and our good, physically and spiritually. So, you know, submission is good, and sin makes us want to think that it's not. I think it's an act of spiritual warfare when you both long for that, but then it grates against you. Yep, absolutely. That flesh and, and soul, yep, that war, exactly. Absolutely. Submission is what's supposed to be doing. What's that? Submission is supposed to what we're doing. So we're supposed to then. Supposed to do what? Yeah, that's what we're supposed to be. I, I must be deaf. I can't understand what he's saying. Alright. Let me pray. Uh, and you guys, as always, you're welcome to stay as long uh, as y'all want to stay. But let's pray and wrap up our time of discussion and lesson. Father in heaven, you are the embodiment of grace, mercy, and love, and your word teaches us that you are a savior by your very nature. And in your infinite, wise, and holy providence, you have orchestrated human history to magnify yourself through reconciling undeserving sinners to you. Father, we're overwhelmed by the depths and the riches of your redeeming love and how our reception of your forgiveness propels us to offer forgiveness to those who have sinned against us in this life. And Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us any areas in our lives in which we are failing to model biblical principles of forgiveness and conflict resolution so that we can display these attributes before a watching world on a more consistent basis. Father, we ask that you would move in power throughout our local church so that genuine repentance and reconciliation will take place wherever such is needed, God. And may these important truths that we glean from your word tonight undergird every facet of our lives. Father, that we would grow in our willingness and our ability to put your love and forgiveness on display before a watching world, all to your glory, honor, and praise. And Father, we, we thank you for the privilege that it was to study your word tonight, and we just ask for your blessing upon us as we seek to finish this week strong. We pray all of this in Christ's name.